We are going to be continuing our series. This is our second message in the book of Ruth. Uh, if you're looking for it in your Bible, you're going to go and towards the beginning, and you're going to look for Judges. And then right after Judges, you're going to have Ruth. If you get to First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you've gone too far. Come back towards the beginning. When we started out the previous week, what we saw was that Ruth is a story that begins with pain. At the beginning, at the onset of the story, it begins with bitter hardships. And yet, this is a story that is beloved by many. We love reading the story. It has all of the best parts. It is a masterpiece of in just four short chapters to get all of this truth, all of these characters that you can relate to and understand and see what they're going through. And it has this glorious ending. But before we get to that ending, there's the problem. There's these questions. Two weeks ago, we, we began by looking at verses one through five. And if you, it's on the back of your handout, you have it in your Bible as well. You just look there just to remind us, invite us all to join into the story. So often when we're, we're going through uh, stories that you know, you can just kind of let things just go past you and you don't understand the reality of what was happening, of placing ourselves inside and imagining what it would have been like for Naomi. What those moments of, of desolation must have felt like. If we just remember verses one through five, give us the setting we, we start out and, and there's, there's a problem, that surface level problem that is going to be a catalyst for some decisions. What's the problem right at the beginning? What is there not, what is there, what's lacking in Bethlehem? Food. And there's an irony in that because what we saw two weeks ago is that Bethlehem means the house of food. The house of bread. And there's this irony right at the beginning that in Bethlehem, there's no food. Well, when is this happening? What does it say at the very beginning, even before the famine? It says, what time period is this story? What setting is it? In the time of the judges. Well, turn your Bible back one page because this is so important for us to understand the, the backdrop of this story. What's the last verse of judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The author's not just telling us, oh, like this is, this happened in the seventh century. This is, no, he's giving us an, a clue as to the spiritual temperature that this book is set in. Where is this happening? It's happening in Bethlehem. But more than just Bethlehem, it starts first within the promised land. And what we know about the promised land is that this was going to be the place that God would provide for his people. That he would give them the food that they wanted, the security that they needed, if they would follow him. And yet they're not following him. What we see in the last four chapters of, of Judges, and, and it's interesting because in Judges, a lot of the stories at the very end all are kind of surrounding Bethlehem. 
There's all of these connections that are happening there and, and, and even Ephrathites and other people. So there's these connections here to the story of Ruth and what the stories at the end of Judges tell us is that Israel is not doing well. There is rampant sin. The people are rebellious and they're unrepentant. We see that in Elimelech. Because what should Elimelech have done when he sees the condition of his people, the condition of his family? Repent. He should have repented. Now here's the most ironic part. If there was someone that we could say, man, let's pick the perfect name for a hero, the perfect counterpoint to Judges 21-25. What is there lacking in Judges 21-25? There's no king. And everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Well, maybe if we could just pick the perfect guy that's going to come in and change all that, maybe we would name them Elimelech. Do you know why? Do you know what Elimelech means? My God is king. Here's this guy that we think, okay, this guy's going to get it. Of course there's a king in Israel. It's God. God's the king. He's not going to do what's right in his own eyes. He's going to follow the king. And yet what does he do? He runs away. He doesn't repent. He doesn't lead his family into repentance, his people into repentance. Instead, where does he lead his family? To Moab. To a people who sought to curse the people of God. To a people who were the result of incest. To a people who have been told by God that they would not be allowed into his presence until the 10th generation. We talked about this previously, just a reminder for us as if you are a leader in your home, that you need to understand the, the consequences of your actions because the burden of Elimelech's sins are placed on others. Now we don't know, maybe Naomi was part of that decision, but for certain, Elimelech was the one in which God is looking, going to look at and place this burden on of you led your family to this place. And so what happens? Starts out that they sojourn to Moab. That was already a mistake. They should have stayed in Bethlehem, but it didn't just stop there because it says that they sojourned and then later it says, and they remained there. And then we see the tragedy starting to happen. First, we see Elimelech die. And that pattern of doing what was right in his own eyes passed on to his sons because then his sons married people that were not part of God's people. Something that God had been very clear, do not take wives from the other nations lest you follow their gods. And what happens then? Death. And we reach this moment of pain and desolation for Naomi. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Naomi? Naomi is alone. Two times in our passage, in, in, in the verse five verses, it emphasizes that, both at the end of verse three and at the end of verse five. Look at how it, what it says at the end of verse five. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Can you imagine what it was like to be Naomi? Naomi is alone. 
And to make matters worse, Naomi is far from home. She isn't in her land. She isn't in her culture. She isn't with her people. She isn't in Bethlehem. She isn't in Judah. She's not even in Israel. This isn't the promised land that God provided for his people. She is in Moab. Naomi is alone and far from home. Do you think that this is what she wanted? Do you think that this is what she planned her life to look like? Do you think she thought those 10 years earlier, sitting in her house in Bethlehem, that this is what her life would look like just 10 years later? Do you think that she was hoping this is where she'd end up? No. This is bitter. This is pain. This is desolation. This is not the story she wanted for her life. She didn't want to be alone. She didn't want to be far from home, but that's where she is right now. Sometimes I I find it helpful to try to immerse myself into the story, to not just read it on the page, but to imagine what it must have been like. I imagine Naomi lying alone in the bed that she used to share with her husband after a sleepless night. I imagine her there with that ache in her throat, the burning of her eyes, wishing she could cry, but all the tears have been wept. I imagine her going through the motions of life, getting up, doing whatever chores or tasks are necessary for survival, all the while her mind is racing through the million questions, the nagging doubts, the incessant what-ifs that come from grief and tragedy. And I imagine that through it all, one of the recurring thoughts for Naomi was, what am I doing here? How did my life end up like this, what do I do now? One of the most powerful things about stories is that it allows us to consider what that was like. And and truthfully, even if you have not been through what Naomi went through, you understand these feelings. You understand realizing, reaching a point and looking and saying, how did I end up here? This is not where I wanted to be. This is not how I wanted my life to end up. What do I do now? Where do I go? Who do I turn to? Have you ever looked up through tear-blurred eyes and perceived that you are in Moab? Now, I'm not sure what caused you to be in Moab. Because I've realized that. Maybe the process was that you're in Moab because even though you knew better, you made a series of bad and sinful choices that led you away from where God told you to be. That's what happened to Elimelech. Maybe you're in Moab as a result of the wrong decisions others have made and their sin has placed a burden on you and it feels like you're bearing it alone. To some degree, that's where Naomi's at. Maybe you're in Moab and you can't find any other reason other than this is the reality of living in a fallen and sinful world. Or maybe you're in Moab because that's all you've ever known. You were born and raised in Moab and you've never known any other reality like Ruth and Orpah. 
regardless of the reason of why you're there, regardless of the path, all of us at some point will realize and find ourselves not where we are meant to be. I've, I've experienced that just in the last few weeks. Moments where, where I take stock of my life, where, where, where I, I go through and I say, wait a second, this is not where I'm supposed to be. I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Christ. He has transferred me out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. What am I still doing here? So then the question is, where do we go? What do we do? Who do we turn to? This morning, we're going to answer those questions. We're going to see that no matter what the reason is that we find ourselves in Moab, there's only ever one right response. There is one thing for us to do that is that first step when we realize that we are not where we are meant to be. Here's our big idea. Return and find rest in the Redeemer. When we realize that we are not where we are meant to be, when we realize that where God has called us to the the place that he has prepared, when we are not there, what do we do? We return and we find rest in the Redeemer. Let's look now at beginning in verse six. We've seen the the desolation that happens in in verses one through five. Now let's look and see all of this pain, all of these things. What what does it lead to? It leads to a decision on Naomi's part. Let's look here. Uh, Verses six through seven. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Throughout the passage, we're going to see this one word. I, I, I forget what I counted. I think it's something like 13 times. This word, return, go back. Sometimes used in the wrong way to say return, go back to Moab, but overwhelmingly return, go back to where you are meant to be. Now let's just remember that on the surface level, why did Naomi and her family leave Israel? Why did they leave Bethlehem? Because famine, no food. That was the surface level decision. Wait a second, we might starve here. We need to go find food. So why is she returning now? Well, again, because on a certain level, what has she heard? There's food. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That word food there in Hebrew is the word lahem. Okay, Good news, we're seeing a change. There's food, again, there's lahem in Bethlehem. But what we saw two weeks ago is that there was a deeper issue beyond just the surface level. The deeper issue was that this was a period where the people of Israel were sinful, rebellious, and unrepentant. The famine didn't just happen. God had told his people in the law that that would be the result of their rebellion. 
And so now what we're seeing is that the deeper issue of the famine was Israel's sin. And so we might also think that the surface level reason of response is just that there's food in Israel, but there's a greater truth that the author is pointing out. What else did Naomi hear? She didn't just hear that there's food again in Israel. What did she hear? Look at the verse. The Lord visited his people and gave them food. The greater truth that is being revealed here is that God is being compassionate to his people. That he hasn't abandoned or forgotten them. Even though it was their sin that got them into trouble in the first place, God is visiting his people. Why is this important for us to recognize this truth early on? Why is the author already giving this little bit of foreshadowing, an idea of, wait a second, there's something bigger, there's something deeper going on? Because when we are in the midst of pain and trials, it's so hard for us to see the foundational truths that God is good, that he is in control, that he is compassionate, that he cares. But here we see God visited his people. God provided food for them. Just as an aside, I want to highlight an important feature within the book of Ruth, uh, and that's the importance of actions. Uh, What's the expression that we say? Actions speak? You know it. Good. Actions speak louder than words. Well, one of the discussions of Ruth is, is uh, the book of Ruth is, who's the main character? Is it Naomi? Is it Ruth? Uh, does Boaz fit in there somehow? And, and to some degree, they're all main characters. What's interesting, though, is the title character, Ruth, out of the three of them, she has the least amount of, of words. Both Naomi and Boaz speak more than Ruth, and yet Ruth speaks loudly how? Her actions. Her actions speak louder than just words. Throughout the story, we're going to see people noticing Ruth's testimony. The people of Israel are going to say, we know about this girl. Boaz is going to say, I've heard about what you've done. I've seen it. I see the way that you work in the fields. Her actions are going to speak loudly. And therefore, we can learn about Ruth, about what it looks like to be faithful. But there's another character within the book of Ruth that has even less words than Ruth. In fact, they have no words in the book. But they are a main character. Who are we talking about? God. God does not speak in this book, but what communicates so clearly? His his actions. He's providing for his people. He's the one, he's the thread that pulls all of this together, that he has a plan, that he is going to find a way to produce sweet harvests from bitter hardships. He is in control. And so as we're going through this book, don't miss and think, well, wait, there's no red letters in this book. There's no words of God. And yet we see his actions. 
So there's good news. The Lord is acting out of compassion to his people. He is being kind and loving towards them. What's the problem? Where's Naomi when she gets the news? Naomi's in the fields of Moab. Naomi is in the wrong place. The problem is that Naomi is not in a position to enjoy the compassion the Lord is bestowing on his people. Because of the actions of her husband, because of even her actions, again, we don't know the degree in which it was a joint decision, but the fact is, because she is in Moab, the truth and the compassion that God is bestowing on his people, she's not in a position to receive that. She's far away. So we have here on one side Naomi's desolation, her pain has been her reality here in Moab. On the other side, we have God's compassion as he provides for his people. These two truths lead Naomi to a difficult decision. It's one thing to travel the 50 miles or so from one place to another when you have your husband, when you have your two sons, strong sons, to go and with you along the way. And now Naomi has to make a hard decision. Is she going to make this journey on her own. And remember, the climate of Moab, of Israel, is not good. The stories that you read at the end of Judges are awful. Even what Naomi's going to say later in chapter 2, where she's concerned about Ruth, lest she be assaulted in the fields of Israel. And now she has to make this difficult decision, but she makes the choice. She makes the most important decision she could possibly make when she realizes she's not in the place she should be. She decides to return. She arose with her daughter-in-laws to return. She set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. As we go through this passage, we're going to see that Naomi is not going to get everything right. Naomi's going to make a lot more mistakes. But Naomi gets the most important decision right. Naomi decides to return. So often we can think that, no, wait, I have to figure things out here. I need to do this all perfect. I need to, to get my life in order first, and then I'll return. Let me find some, some husbands for my daughters. Let me, let me go through all of this process, and then I can return. I don't want to return humble. I want to return on top. I want people to see that what my plan, it worked. Naomi's not doing that. Naomi's returning because she needs to find a place of rest. Where she is, she'll never find it. This is the step that all of us need to take whenever we realize that we're in Moab. We need to return. When we recognize that we are not where we are meant to be, we must turn away from those things and pursue the place that God has prepared for us. Return and find rest in the Redeemer. Why? Why should we return? Because the Lord is compassionate. Are the people of Israel receiving all of this because they've always just been perfect? No. What got them in that position in the first place? They messed up. But God was compassionate. 
And so Naomi hearing from away in Moab, she hears this truth, the Lord has visited. And what does that truth reveal? The Lord is compassionate. He is kind. He is loving. He cares. So Naomi begins her journey with her two daughter-in-laws, but they don't get too far before Naomi begins to have other thoughts. Let's look at verses 8 through uh, 15, actually. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Just so that we understand, and this is going to come in more important later, to continue the name of someone in Israel. If a husband died before there were children, then it fell on a relative to marry the widow so that his name could continue. But Naomi's saying, I've got nothing else. There's no other children. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter. To me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi has made the most important decision to return. We can see, but we can see here that she is still struggling. We see that in in her dismissal of her daughters-in-law. Like all of life, Naomi's a little complicated. It's not just straightforward where we're like, oh yes, absolutely, this was totally wrong, or no, this was completely right. It's complicated. On one hand, she seems to demonstrate a confidence in God. After all, she blesses her daughters when she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. She wants what's best for her daughters. She loves them. You can see the love here as the daughters weep at her telling them to go. But on the other hand, Naomi demonstrates that she's struggling with God. When she tells them, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. On one hand, she prays that God would bless them And on the other, she says, but God has dealt bitterly with me. This is the the reality of life that we can hold these two contradictory statements as true at the same time. And often those happen the most when we're in turmoil, when we're grieving, when we're in the midst of pain and desolation. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the process of returning. Naomi didn't make the best and most important decision to return and then from then on get everything right. She still made mistakes. From that point on, it's not like she said, you know what, I'm going to return. All my doubts have been taken away. 
I have no more questions. I fully understand everything that God was doing. I am not upset about this. I am at peace. This is wonderful. Let's take this 50-mile journey together. Let's sing songs while we do it. She's struggling. She's hurting. Sometimes we can think that the only way to return is if we're going to do it perfectly. And, And here's the newsflash. We can't, and we won't. We can't return perfectly. We are not going to get it right. We are still going to give bad advice. We are still going to make wrong turns. We are still going to make stupid decisions. But that shouldn't stop us from returning. The whole reason we're in the place that we are is because of our own stupid decisions. This is why we need someone greater. This is the bigger truth, that God is bigger than our mistakes. Return even though you will make more mistakes. I've had this this counseling so many times where I've been in this situation where people say, no, no, I I can't go back. I can't return. I'm not going to do it right. You don't understand. No one's going to do it right. That's why there's grace and compassion and mercy. If it was about getting it right, we wouldn't need to return. We could just do it on ourselves. But we can't. That's why we need to return. Because this is where we find rest. This is where our problem is provided for. But let's look back, though, at at what's happening. Naomi is trying to dismiss her daughters. She tells them to go back. Why? Please understand, I I think that Naomi is trying to show love to her daughters. I think in her limited understanding, she thinks she's doing what's best for them. Naomi doesn't want her daughters to go through what she's going through. She doesn't want them to have to live far from her people, far from her land, far from her parents. She loves them. She doesn't want them to go through the pain and desolation of living as a childless widow in a foreign land. She knows what that feels like. Top of that, as we've already said, this is, she knows that the Israel she left was not a pretty place. She's worried, lest you be assaulted. She's concerned about what this is going to look like, what this is going to cost her daughters to be back with her. It's possible that maybe she's thinking about herself and she's like, oh, I don't want to come back with foreigners. People are going to judge me. I don't think that's the case. I really think that she's looking out and thinking of what's best for her daughters, but there's a problem. What level is Naomi thinking on? She's thinking on the surface. She's still doing the second part of Judges 21-25. She's doing what's right in her own eyes. Because we, when we know the greater story, where is the best place her daughters could be? Even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of of the tribulations, where is the best place that Orpah and Ruth could be? Resting under the refuge of the Redeemer. But that's not the level that Naomi's thinking. Because, and we can see that because of the things that she tells them she's, uh, that are on the surface level. Look at what she says. Return each of you to your mother's house. The Lord grant that you may find rest where? Each of you in the house of her husband. 
Right now, what the level that Naomi's thinking is refuge is found in the, in the mother's house. Rest is found in the arms of a husband. Now, both daughters push back on this. They weep, they reject her offer. And, and, and Naomi, they tell Naomi, we're not gonna leave you. We're not going back to there. We're gonna go with you. And how does Naomi respond? She doubles down. She points to earthly circumstances. Naomi's lack of understanding here. She says, look, there's no hope. I have no hope. Even if I had a husband tonight, I can't give you anything that will provide you rest and refuge. Return to Moab. Don't come with me. Again, the more important decision Naomi has already made. But part of the process that Naomi is still going to learn throughout the rest of this story is that rest is not just found in your circumstances. Rest is found in the Redeemer. See, we, 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 this is further confirmed in, in verse 15 when she says this about her daughter, about Orpah, because Orpah leaves and she says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. There, there's more going on here. This isn't just about, well, you know what? Let's make the wise decision, the pros and cons. On this side, I get to stay at my place with my parents, with my people. On that side, it's your place. It's, it's different parents, different people. I, you know what? This is just better. No, there's more going on. Which God are you going to follow? Where are you actually seeking rest? Turn back, my daughters. If I should say I have hope, the implication is she does not have hope. See, this is a matter of trust. Naomi couldn't see how God could rectify this terrible situation. Naomi couldn't see how God could possibly produce a sweet harvest out of these bitter hardships. She's looking at her own life and saying, there's no good that's going to come from this. Therefore, there's no good that can come from you guys doing what I did. Don't do this. But she's not recognizing there's a stark difference between the two. They're not going away from God. They were going towards God. And that makes all the difference. The irony is that what Naomi wants, the the prayer, is that that they would find rest in the house of their husband. The irony is that one of them is going to find that but it's the one who does not do what Naomi says. Ruth is going to find rest in the arms of a husband. That's the end of the story, but there's even something greater than that. Before she finds rest in the arms of a husband, she finds refuge under the wings of a redeemer. That's what Boaz says to her in chapter 2. Boaz says in in chapter 2, verse uh, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Naomi, Ruth is going to find rest, but it's not just in the arms of the husband. Ruth is also going to find refuge under the wings of a redeemer, under the redeemer. Don't we struggle doing with the same thing as Naomi? 
Don't we struggle just considering everything according to the circumstances, according to our wisdom of how God is going to make this work? Don't we face trials and tribulations and say, this is bitter, no sweetness can come from this. Therefore, the advice that we give others is according to that, what's right in our own eyes. What's truly astounding and what would be surprising to the initial readers is that there is one person in this story who's not going to do what's right in their own eyes. Who's not going to follow conventional wisdom. And it's the Moabite. Let's move on. It says this. Well, actually, go back one. And, uh, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go, with her, she said, no more. We've seen Naomi still struggling. And she understands the, the, the decision, that, the, the bigger decision that's being made here, whether or not, which God are you going to follow? And at this point, those decisions seem pretty equal. It's, it, it's a balanced scale of like, well, yes, Yahweh's on this side, but your comfort is on this side. And right now, at this stage in Naomi's life, the, the side that is taking precedent is, you know what? This is going to be easier for you. But look at what Naomi, what Ruth does. We see Ruth's devotion. It's one of the most beautiful demonstrations of devotion in Scripture. First, we see Ruth's devotion to Naomi. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I'm following you to the end. I'm sticking with you. Nothing's going to take me away from you. We're going to do this together. It's an incredible demonstration of devotion to Naomi. And we're going to see throughout the rest of this book, it's not just words. Naomi's not just saying something. Uh, how many weddings have we been to where the, the vows are these beautiful words that are proclaimed? Maybe it was even these words that were said in the vows and they say all of these things and when you actually look at their lives, you're like, wait a second. That, that's not devotion. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. Ruth's going to live it. Ruth's going to do the hard things of going back and supporting her mother-in-law in a foreign land. But there's something even more wonderful. Ruth is not only devoted to Naomi, Ruth is devoted to God. Notice what she says at the end of both verse 16 and verse 17. She says at the end of verse 16, your God, my God. She finishes by her, her proclamation of devotion by saying, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. We don't know at what moment Ruth chose to follow the one and true God. It might have been during the last 10 years, but what we can see here 
is Ruth's total submission. She's not just basing this on her human relationship. She is linking this to her relationship with God. Your God will be my God, and this is my vow. If anything stops me from being who I am meant to be, may God punish me. That's quite the claim when you've just watched the life of your in-laws. What has Ruth just seen happen? And she's going to say, may God do that and more? There is a level of submission here. She is forsaking everything. She is leaving her father and her mother. She is leaving her land. She is leaving her culture. She is leaving her people. And she's doing it under the authority of God. It's interesting to compare and contrast Ruth and Naomi at this point in the story. Right now, both are widowed. Both are childless. Both of them are on a journey. Both of them are desolate. But here's what's different. Whereas Naomi is going back home, Ruth is leaving hers. Whereas Naomi fled her land because of starvation, Ruth is going to a land where there's a good chance she will face starvation. Naomi is going back to a place and people she knows. Ruth is leaving the only people and place she knows. Why would Naomi, why would Ruth do that? Because she is submitting herself to God. I don't think her words here are just poetic or nice. She means these. The proof is in her actions. She is placing her total trust in God. And what she is saying is that seeking rest and refuge under the Redeemer is better than seeking rest and refuge in my own home apart from that God. She's leaving it all behind. And the people in Israel recognize that. Boaz sees it. The elders at the gate, they see it, that this woman is placing her trust in God, this foreigner. Now, I want to just make an aside here. What we need to know is, is that we need to return even if we've never been there before. And you're like, well, wait a second. That's not how language works. You can't be, do that. Well, Theologically, this word return has spiritual significance. It's the word we see as repent. Turn away. This has been your reality, but this is not where you're meant to be. Turn away from it. This is what Naomi is doing. She's never known the promised land. She's never been in Bethlehem. She's never been there. And yet she is returning because she's repenting. She's turning away from what she's pursued. She's turning away from her gods. She's forsaking her father and her mother in order to find and seek rest in the Redeemer. If you're here this morning, and you're in Moab, and you've never known the kingdom of God's beloved son, return. Repent. Turn away from what you have been doing and place your faith in Christ alone. But there's a warning here that we see in Ruth's life, and this is the warning. There will be a cost. See, Ruth's pursuit of divine refuge 
is going to look like pursuing earthly turmoil. Sometimes we can think, you know, you know what? This is going to work out. I'm going to find rest in my Redeemer, and that means life is going to be easy. How'd that work out for Ruth? Yeah, we know where the story ends, but where does the story go next? Yeah, they're going to arrive in Israel when there's a harvest. What's the problem? They didn't plant anything. It's not their harvest. And so what Ruth is pursuing, while she is pursuing divine rest, while she is looking for refuge in the Redeemer, what that means right now is earthly turmoil. She's going to have to face all the pain that her mother-in-law has been facing. And she's doing it, choosing to do that. Why? Because she believes that the rest in the Redeemer is greater than the turmoil of this earth. Return, even if the earthly cost is high. We come back to, to, to Naomi in verse 19, and we see that, that there is still a level of despair. She still has her doubts. It says this, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? Remember, this has been years She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Why? Naomi is pleasant. It's delightful. Don't call me that. It it, it adds a thorn in my side. There's nothing about my life that I would describe as pleasant or as a delight. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This is a pilgrimage for Naomi. It's going to be so much fun to see where Naomi is going to land, but we can understand what she's going through right now. Don't call me that. There's nothing pleasant about this. This is hard. I hate this. She's got her doubts. Does God care? Is he good? Is he going to provide? Is he going to do anything about this? And it's going to take her a while to get there. And yet, don't lose sight of the, the fact that she's making the right choice because she's returning, even with her doubts. Return even when you still have doubts. Because here's the reality. We need to understand that bitterness is going to affect our lives. Bitterness caused us to misinterpret the past. What does she say about the past? I went away full. Um, no, you didn't. <laughs> you left because of hardships. You left because of a famine. That's not being full. We talked about this two weeks ago. That's the way of Israel looking back at the past in Egypt. Oh, it was so good in Egypt when we had those melons and we didn't have to pay for them. Yes, you did. You were slaves. Oh, I went away full. No, you weren't full. It also doesn't cause her just to misinterpret the past. It causes her to struggle to see the good that is still around her. I'm coming back empty. No, you're not. Ruth just gave up everything for you. She's with you. Now, the reason I think that that is part of of what the author is doing and and that Naomi is not quite seeing that is because of the words that the women are going to say at chapter four where they're going to tell her, Naomi, you're so blessed. Ruth is more valuable to you than seven sons. 
the perfect number of sons. If you had everything where people would look like, oh man, I wish I was Naomi with seven sons. They're saying that about Ruth. And yet where she is right now in her sorrow, in her bitterness, in her doubt is that I'm empty. Bitterness also causes us to question the character of God. Is God good? We're going to have those questions. The fact remains that if we truly want to find rest, we need to return even when we still have knots. This is what Stephen Page reminded us of during the announcements two weeks ago. This is that illustration that Pastor Don would use, that when you start your, your faith, when you are starting that journey, and if it were a rope that you're climbing, tie that knot at the bottom that God is good so that when you're slipping, when you're sliding, you don't go past that point. You reach the bottom and you realize, wait, God is still good. I don't understand. I'm having trouble acknowledging what has happened in the past. I'm having trouble interpreting the present and recognizing what is still good in my life. And yet I know that God is good. Even though I can't see it, I'm going to believe it. And then we come to the very end where we see a little bit of foreshadowing. So Naomi returned and Ruth the, Mo with, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. You see it there? How did, how did Ruth return? Well, we've talked about that. Ruth returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. What we see here is that God is still in control, that he has dominion. On one level, God is in control because he has already given them laws to Israel on how to deal with women like this, how to provide for them. There were laws in place so that they could still have food. God is in control. But this is also pointing to something bigger. What, what have we seen so far? Have we seen any harvest so far? No. All we've seen is bitter hardships, and yet this is the foreshadowing. This is where the author is starting to say, but wait, something's about to change. Here's the question. Do Ruth and Naomi deserve that harvest? Did they plant the seeds? Did they cultivate the land? Have they, did they stay in the land through the hardship? Did they go through all of that process? No. But this is the goodness of our God, that God allows us to reap the sweet harvest from seeds we did not plant. That's the truth of Scripture, that we get to reap the good fruit from seeds we did not plant. If we could only reap from the seeds we planted, we'd never taste anything but bitterness. And yet here, it is the time of harvest. Return because he's in control. He has a plan. He hasn't lost sight of what's happening. He is behind all of the details. He's the one that's painting the masterpiece even though you don't understand the colors and technique, techniques he's choosing. It's possible you're here this morning and right now you feel like you're in Moab. 
Maybe you're in the process of sojourning to Moab because of the choices you are currently making and you're on a path that is leading you away from where God wants you to be. Return. Return. You're not going to experience anything but bitterness on that path. Maybe you're not sojourning. Maybe you're already inhabiting Moab. The choices have been made and now you feel like you're stuck and your life is very, very far from God and you think there's no coming back from this. Nothing could, uh, can happen. God's not going to welcome me back. Return. Return. Return and find rest in the Redeemer. Maybe you haven't, to the best of your ability, you can't see anything that you've done wrong and yet the circumstances of your life feel like God has exiled you to Moab, that he's cast you out and placed a burden on you greater than you can bear and you're having trouble trusting him. Return. Return and find rest. Maybe you're in Moab because you've never known anything different. You've never placed your faith in the Redeemer. Return. How? By repenting. Whatever the reason that you are, that any of us are now or one day find ourselves in Moab, the solution is the same. We must return. We must turn from this desolate land and return to our Redeemer. If you're on that path that takes you away, repent. Turn away. Why? Because he's trustworthy. He's compassionate and he's in control. Those are the two truths that we need to hold on to because all of those middle parts, all of those doubts of, of, well, I still have doubts. Well, I'm still going to make mistakes. Wait, I've never been there before. Wait, this is going to cost me something. All of those things bookended on either side. He's compassionate. He's in control. So return. Why should we do this? Why, what is the point? We've already seen returning isn't easy. Often there is going to be a great cost, but this pilgrimage is going to bring often pain, but more than pain, it will bring us rest. Not necessarily in this, the circumstances of this life, but rest in the total trust and confidence that he is in control, that he is compassionate, that he is, that he is kind. It is the rest in a redeemer who produces sweet harvests from bitter hardships. It is the rest that is not based on earthly circumstances, but in our eternal security. Rest, return and find rest in the Redeemer. We're gonna stand now and sing.